In addition to that technology, I also have an overhead projector that we're going to make a little bit of use of uh, shortly. And if, if we're fortunate and the Lord is with us, none of us will get electrocuted this morning. <laughs> now listen, before I start, uh, you know that I'm now at Reformed Theological Seminary. Some of you are looking for a place to prepare for full-time Christian service. Some of you are debating between this seminary and that seminary. If you want some information about Reformed Seminary in Orlando, uh, make an appointment and we'll try to find some time to tell you about it. There are two campuses of Reformed Seminary, one in Jackson, Mississippi, and the good one in Orlando, Florida. Uh, no, I'm, I'm just joking, of course. Uh, in Orlando, we've got a great faculty. Some of you know R.C. Sproul and his nationwide ministry through Ligonier, his books and his tapes. Steve Brown has a nationwide radio ministry from Miami, Florida. So uh, we've got a fantastic campus and a fantastic faculty. In fact, when you take our two campuses together, we're one of the ten largest seminaries in the world. Now, I do want to warn you, however, if you become interested in going to seminary in Orlando, there are several things you're going to have to give up. For one thing, we have no earthquakes in Florida. For another thing, we have no floods. We have no. We do have uh, thunder and lightning, but we don't have. We don't have any floods in Florida. There is no truth, absolutely no truth, to the rumor that the logo of RTS Orlando is a picture of Mickey Mouse holding up a copy of the Bible. That is simply not true. Nine months ago, I found myself in Russia, in the city of Moscow. And on a particular day, I got on the elevator of the 14th floor of my rather run-down Moscow hotel, together with about 25 native Russians. And one of the things about Russia you discover is that not many people in Russia can really speak English. These people who, uh, on American TV who always find some Russian who can speak English, I think they all have the same American. So I was on this elevator. And I heard a guy at the back of the elevator speaking English with a New York accent. You know that accent. So knowing that no one else in the elevator could understand me, squeezed in there facing the front door of the elevator, I said to the person in the back of the elevator, who's speaking American? And the New York accent said, I am. And I said, well, what are you doing over here? And he said, I'm part of an American boxing team, and we're boxing the Russians tonight. And without thinking, see, I had just seen Rocky V or Rocky VI. Without thinking, I said, well, punch him out real good, see. Forgive me. And then this New York City boxer said to me, what are you doing over here? <laughs> and I said, I'm here to tell the Russians about Jesus. <laughs> but what was great was... From the back of the elevator, this boxer says, Hey, that's great. I almost brought a couple of extra Bibles myself. Tremendous things are happening these days in Russia. I wish I, wish I had more time to just share with you some of the miracles the Lord is doing. I honestly believe, I honestly believe that in Russia today we have the greatest missionary opportunity in the history of the Christian church. I was invited over there as part of a team that, had, that came there at the invitation of the Russian Ministry of Education. 
Before we came over, one of Boris Yeltsin's right-hand men said this. He said, 70 years ago, this country kicked God out. And ever since, there has been a moral and spiritual vacuum at the very center of this country. The problems that Russia, the Soviet Union, is facing right now, this assistant to Boris Yeltsin said, is a direct consequence of this country's ignoring God and the Bible for the last 74 years. Now, you want to know what the Russian Ministry of Education wanted us to do. They wanted us to hold conferences in which we would ground Russian school teachers in, in the Christian faith so that those Russian school teachers could then communicate the basic elements of the Christian faith and Christian morality to their school children. When I first heard that, I said to myself, thank God the U.S. Supreme Court has no jurisdiction in godless Russia. One of the incredible things is that you can today do things in Russia that you cannot do in so-called Christian America. Now, the way we now have an opportunity to get the Christian gospel into every one of Russia's 60,000 schools. Here's how we're going to do that. Over the next two years, there will be scores of teams of 40 to 50 people holding conferences in which hundreds of Russian school teachers, one or two teachers from every school in Russia, will come for four days and they will be grounded in an introduction to the Christian Bible, to the Christian scriptures. We will ground them in the techniques of Christian education. We will give each of them a copy of the Jesus film, which is a tremendous evangelistic and teaching tool. And we will be, there will be dozens of people doing what I will be starting to do this week, ground those Russian school teachers in the rudiments of the Christian worldview. Now, this is unbelievable because what we're finding is that as we share this information with these Russian school teachers, many of them themselves are becoming, becoming believers. It's absolutely mind-boggling to sit in an auditorium in the Soviet Union or the old Soviet Union and hear the Christian gospel presented to, to former communists, members of the Communist Party, graduates of the atheistic university system in the Soviet Union, here, have them presented the Christian gospel and then watch hundreds of them indicate that they had accepted Christ as their Savior. The Lord has opened up this opportunity in which uh, the Christian message will be presented in every one of Russia's 60,000 schools by their own teachers using the material that we equip them with and using the Jesus film. Now, it's possible... If we could link some of you who might be interested in this, it's possible that some of you, your faculty or other people, might have an opportunity over the next couple of years to actually become a part of these teams. There are lots of ministries that are working together in this, Campus Crusade for Christ, Walk Through the Bible, and several dozen other ministries. When I was first asked to go over there last May and share what I had to give to Russian school teachers, it became clear to me that there was nothing 
that I could give them that could be more important, in my view, than grounding them in the Christian worldview. And that's what I want to start talking to you about today. Now, first of all, let's ask ourselves this question. What is a worldview? As part of my answer, it's something that everybody in the world has. The catch is that most people have no idea what a worldview is, and fewer people still have any idea what their worldview is. One of the most important things that people must do in communicating the gospel, especially in California, all right, especially in California, where you've got so many weirdos walking around who are advocates of New Age thinking or, or Gnosticism or some other gospel, is you've got to help them realize that a proper consideration of the Christian faith depends upon comparing and relating their worldview to the biblical worldview. Christianity is not just an isolated collection of pieces of information or theological doctrines. It is an all-encompassing, all-embracing view of life and the world. A worldview is a lot like a blueprint. When someone starts work, when a contractor starts working on a building, he needs something to go by. He needs a blueprint. When people start figuring out how they're going to live their lives, they need a blueprint. And a worldview functions as a blueprint by which we will guide and govern our lives. Worldviews also function a lot like spectacles, like glasses. Let me find my Bible here, assuming I don't fall over my own two feet. And... Right now, I can look down at this Bible, however small the print is, and I can read it. I can make sense out of it. But when I take these glasses off and look down at that page, I can't make a... In fact, it is simply a blur of lines. Now, when I put my spectacles on, however, what was illegible and unintelligible suddenly becomes clear. That's one of the ways in which a worldview works. We often see comic strips in which people say, I'm trying to find the meaning of life. And so they climb some mountain and ask some guru what the meaning... What they're really doing is looking for a worldview. But just as the right worldview can bring into focus what was previously illegible, so the wrong worldview can mess people up quicker than anything else in life. When I was growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, which, as many of you know, is the cultural center of America. <laughs> when I was growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, especially in grades four, five, and six, when kids really get a little weird, I used to say to friends, let me try your glasses on. What's the world look like through your glasses? Any of you ever do that? Let me see. You're from Cleveland? All right. Remember doing that? And all of a sudden, you put on this other person's glasses, and remember, the world looks so strange, and you began to get eccentric headache, eccentric headache number 33. I can't even say it. Well, that's what the wrong worldview will do. It will put life out of focus. It will confuse people. It will lead them in the wrong direction. What we need, then, is the right worldview, the right prescription glasses. All right, now, 
The first of several overlays that I'm going to put on the board indicates, if I can find the light, indicates three ways in which conflicting worldviews can be related. Notice what we have here are three sets of circles. And in the case of the first set of circles, we find that they overlap to a fairly significant degree. This would be illustrated by a case of two worldviews that have far more in common than they have disagreement. Uh, the top set of circles might well represent a conservative uh, evangelical Christian and perhaps a theologically conservative Roman Catholic. Uh, that is a Roman Catholic who, like us, believes in the virgin birth and the deity of Christ and the Trinity. But, of course, there are differences in our worldview. We may disagree with our Catholic friend about how we come to experience God's forgiveness and so on. Then in the case of the middle, middle circles, we find that here are two worldviews that have very little in common. They have a little bit, but there is a great deal more over which they disagree. And then we come to our third set of circles where we find that there is no overlap at all. This last set of circles represents two people whose worldviews have absolutely nothing in common. The circle on the left might well belong to General Norman Schwarzkopf, for example. And the circle on the right might belong, for example, to Saddam Hussein. There would be two people who have nothing in common. I might add here, and this is free of charge, all right, two people whose worldviews are like the last two circles on our triad, those two people should never get married, kids. <laughs> Seriously, when you look around for a, a girlfriend or a boyfriend, all right, you look at all of those physical characteristics, you may look at the personality traits of the individual, but what attention are you paying to the worldview of that individual? Now, on our next chart, I'm going to indicate to you the names of the two worldviews that compete for attention in the part of the world in which we live. I'm going to put this on for just a second or two, then I'll take it off and we'll put it on in, more, uh, in greater detail later on. Aside from California, where there is so much bizarre attachment to Eastern thinking and to New Age thinking, that is, when you get to mainstream America, when you cross the California border, you will find, you will find that the major competitor to the Christian worldview is a worldview known as naturalism. Now, the basic feature of naturalism can be summed up in this sentence. A naturalist is a person who believes that the natural order, that is the order of the world that is apparent to us through our physical senses, the natural order is the only world that exists. Now, when I was challenged to talk about worldviews to Russian school teachers, the first thing that was apparent to me was these people were all indoctrinated in Marxism-Leninism. Naturalism, that worldview that I have on the left side of the screen, naturalism is an inherent part of the Marxist-Leninist scheme of things. 
So that when I was trying to contrast the Christian worldview with naturalism, I was implicitly attacking the Marxism-Leninism in which they had been indoctrinated. What is ironic, however, is that the worldview of so many people in the United States is also naturalistic. Now, these Americans may not recognize the affinities between their naturalism and the naturalism of a Marxist-Leninist worldview, but it is basically the same. uh, uh, Americans who are materialists, who believe that the world has always existed, who deny the existence of God, are just as committed to naturalism as any old hardcore Marxist-Leninist in the Soviet Union was. Well, we'll put this back on the screen a little later on. I now want to identify the five major elements of any worldview. There are more, but we only have 45 minutes, so we'll only talk about five of them. The first element of any worldview is what that person believes about God. Now, don't let the atheist confuse you here. It doesn't matter if a person is a fundamentalist or an atheist, he has an element of his worldview that is devoted to what he thinks about God. In the case of the atheist, of course, he doesn't believe God exists. But that nonetheless is the, the-, the theological component of his worldview. The second element of a worldview is what a person believes about ultimate reality. If you ever take a philosophy course, this is what we call metaphysics. The third element of a worldview is what we believe about knowledge. The fourth element, ethics. And the fifth element, what we believe about human beings. Now let me tick off the major elements of a naturalistic worldview vis-a-vis these five points. And then I'll contrast those elements with what you all know are the competing elements of the biblical worldview. First of all, a naturalist denies the existence of God. There is no supernatural being. He's not even, a naturalist is not even open to, to a new age kind of thinking. Secondly, a naturalist believes that there is nothing that exists in the universe beyond the natural order. If it isn't material, if it isn't physical, if it isn't quantifiable, if it can't be seen through a microscope or a telescope or the naked human eye, it doesn't exist. Ultimate reality is limited to this world. Thirdly, a naturalist tends to focus upon the role of the senses in human knowledge. But even there, as I'll suggest later in the week, he's not always consistent. Fourthly, a naturalist, if he's consistent, will be a relativist. Because, you see, when you are not an ethical relativist, you believe that there are transcendent, objective, moral standards that are universally uh, true and universally applicable. No uh, self-consistent naturalist believes in a moral code. That's one of the reasons why the Soviet Union is going down the tubes these days. The Russians and the Ukraines and the Bilo-Russians... And all of the civilized peoples of the Soviet Union don't know what to do with their society because there is no respect for right. There is no recognition of the difference between right and wrong in the Soviet Union because that's the way those people were taught. 
all of their lives. Fourthly, what do we believe, uh, fifthly, what do we believe about human persons? A naturalist, as you know, believes that when a person dies, he dies like a dog. There is no conscious survival after death. On the other hand, the biblical worldview teaches the existence of a sovereign God who created the world, who is the source of transcendent objective moral standards, and who offers human beings eternal life as his children in the kingdom of God. Now let's return to this previous diagram. Let's hope we can get it all on our little chart. Yes. Now I want to, I want to focus even more attention upon the difference between the naturalistic worldview and the Christian worldview in terms of three basic propositions. Notice that on the left side of the screen, I have described naturalism in terms of a closed box. And inside that box, we have written the words, the natural order. And notice that outside that box, there is nothing. Nothing exists outside the box. Once again, the box represents nature, the natural order, the physical universe, reality as it is studied by the physical sciences. The reason why the box is closed is simple. It's closed because there is nothing outside the box that can possibly act as a cause within the box. Anything that happens inside the natural order must, by definition, be caused by something else that is, with inside, that is within the box. If you have a stomachache after eating lunch today, the cause of that stomachache will be something... I've got to be careful because I don't know where I'm having lunch. All right, I don't know if any of the cooks are here. The cause of that stomachache will be something else within the natural order. Possibly something you ate for lunch. Who knows? Now that's easily understood in the case of headaches and stomachaches and other natural phenomena. But what about... Now remember... A naturalist believes that if something exists within the box, it must be caused by something else that is physical, chemical, and also acting and existing within the box. What about love? That exists within the box. How can a naturalist do justice to love? What must love be reduced to within the worldview of somebody who is a naturalist? I'm not quite sure, but I suspect it's not very complimentary to love. What about a sense of guilt or a sense of moral duty, a sense of moral obligation? That, too, must occur within the box that is the uh, sum and substance of a naturalistic worldview. You see, this is the essence of naturalism. Whatever happens in the natural order must be caused by something else, physical and chemical, within the natural order. So, here's naturalism in a nutshell. Only the box exists. The box is eternal. There is nothing else that exists outside the box, and everything that happens inside the box must be caused by something else that's inside the box. Now, if a person is a naturalist, 
He cannot possibly believe in miracles. Now, maybe some of you have been witnessing to a friend, a high school classmate, a neighbor recently. And one of the first things you bump into when you start witnessing to people about Christianity are the miracles. If you ever run into somebody who says, I can't believe in miracles until you prove them to me, you can be certain you're dealing with a naturalist. The reason why people don't believe in miracles is not because they're smarter than you. It is not because they're more scientific than you. It's because they have already made, now get this, they have already made a religious commitment to a worldview that rules miracles out of bounds. Now, if you want to help your friend who doesn't believe in miracles, it's not going to do you much good to read every one of John Warwick Montgomery's books about the resurrection. That's not going to help you. The first thing you've got to do with that person is dissuade him or her of his naturalism. Until that person wakes up one day and says, naturalism is stupid, they're not going to pay any attention to all the talk you give them about miracles. The same thing applies in the case of New Age people. And I'll say perhaps a little bit more about them on Wednesday. You can't get to first base with someone who's made a religious commitment to New Age thought unless you begin to undermine their confidence in their New Age worldview. Now, on the, on the right, of course, we have the biblical worldview, Christian theism. Notice on the right that we have a box. This box represents nature, the natural order. We Christians are not enemies of science. We don't have anything to fear from the physical sciences. We've got no gripe with the physical sciences. The natural order exists. But, of course, there are some differences. For one difference, notice that the box that represents Christian theism has a hole in it. The box is not sealed. The box is open. For another thing, notice that there is something that exists outside the box. God. And then notice that God can act causally within the box. Now listen to these three points. This is Christian theism in three propositions. Proposition number one. God exists outside the box. Proposition two. God created the box. If God hadn't created the box, there would have been nothing else. He created the natural order and all of the laws that govern the natural order. So God exists outside the box. God created the box. Number three, God acts causally within the box. And what we have then are two conflicting worldviews. If you're a naturalist, you can't be a Christian. If you're a naturalist, you can't believe in miracles. If you're a naturalist, you cannot consistently believe in prayer. If you're a naturalist, there are lots of other things you're going to have to give up as well. Now, we come to chart diagram number four, and we're beginning to wind down here. 
how do we choose among worldviews? Now, I'll tell you how some people think we choose. They think it's a blind leap of faith. How many Christians have I met? How many Christian college kids have I met who think that in this business of choosing between two worldviews, we just close our eyes, we hold our nose, and I'm not going to jump off this platform, but we, you know, it's a blind leap of faith. Now, listen. That's not the way it works in the real world. And we Christians, we Christians are not stuck with an irrational blind leap of faith. Three tests that ought to be applied to anybody's worldview, including the Christian worldview. And if you learn these tests and learn how to apply them, What you will learn is not only what's wrong with those other worldviews out there, but you'll also recognize the superiority, the intellectual superiority of the Christian worldview. Test number one, and I'm going to say more about this on Wednesday, so I'm going to skip over this rather quickly. Worldviews should be submitted to the test of reason. Now, by that I mean the test of the law of non-contradiction. On Wednesday, I'm going to give you numerous examples of worldview beliefs, and we'll cover the gamut. And I will try to help you see on Wednesday how this or that worldview held by your friends, your relatives, your loved ones, the people you work with, are worldview beliefs that cannot pass pass the test of the law of non-contradiction. So let's move past that to the test of experience. A worldview should do justice to our experience of the world. But now notice I have, uh, I have two subdivisions of the test of reason. And this is important. There is the test of our outer experience and the test of inner experience. I'll tell you a true story. Many years ago when I was a graduate student at Brown University, I was working as an orderly in a hospital. And one day it came to my attention that we had a patient in the hospital whose religious faith was that of Christian science. Now, I'm not sure how much you know about Christian science, but Christian science teaches that evil and suffering and sickness and death are illusions. They're not real. And I guess if you're a Christian scientist, you, when you reach the point that you believe that sickness, cancer, for example, doesn't exist, This this somehow delivers you from that, all right? I said to one of the nurses, what is a Christian scientist doing in this hospital? And she said, and this gets a little gross, but you might as, you know, we might as well come to grips with the real world. She said, this lady got cancer, but neither she nor her family believed in the reality of cancer, so they never took her to a doctor. They kept taking her to a Christian science practitioner who kept saying, there is no such thing as cancer, all right? Sin and sickness don't exist. Well, this poor lady's condition continued to get worse until her, and here's where it gets a little gross, but we're talking about the real world, her flesh began to rot and her family couldn't stand the smell of her rotting flesh. They could deny the cancer but they couldn't deny the reality of her, of her declining body. 
And so they put her in the hospital so that they wouldn't have to put up with her smell anymore. And then a couple of days later, and remember, death is not real. Sickness. Two nurses went in that room and wheeled that corpse down to the morgue. Our work, their Christian science, New Age, these are worldviews, friends, that do not fit the world that we know about. We as Christians had better make sure that our worldview fits the world of experience, the world of science, our, our contact with the outer world. But notice, not only must our worldview fit what we know about the world outside of us, it must fit the world inside of us. And boy, is this where Christianity begins to get an advantage. Suppose for the sake of argument that you're a naturalist, all right? How can naturalism do justice to love, pity, guilt, the sense of right and wrong? All of those things must be as illusory for the, for the naturalist as sin and sickness are illusory for the Christian scientist. He must find some other way of explaining guilt away, explaining the sense of moral obligation away. Naturalism cannot do justice to the test of the inner world, nor can New Age thought. And if you want more about that, you can check out a book that I have coming out. Incidentally, the, book, the book's title is uh, Worldviews in Conflict, and it'll be published by Zondervan uh, sometime in the early fall. Now, the last test, the test of practice. Let me tell you who did the most in the last 20 years to make clear the importance of the test of practice. It was Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer's great contribution to Christian worldview thinking was to try and get people to pay attention to this question. If I accept this worldview, can I live that worldview out in my everyday life? And what Francis Schaeffer argued was that non-Christians cheat. And they cheat by borrowing elements of the Christian worldview and living their lives according to elements of the Christian worldview that they theoretically denounce. The world is full of people who are naturalists in their worldview, but they are decent honest, law-abiding people. But the catch is that if they were consistent naturalists, they would not be decent, law-abiding people. What they do, and we need to help them see this, with their mind they reject the Christian faith, but with their heart they slip in through the back door the basic principles of Christian morality. Now, we should not let them get away with that. We should point out that inconsistency. All right, now let's come to my close. There are lots of Christians who are afraid of the life of the mind. They're afraid of things that are intellectual. I grew up in a segment of the Christian church that was just like that. I was taught when I was your age to be suspicious of philosophy, to beware of logic, to avoid science. I grew up in a Christian environment just like that. Listen, kids, what I'm telling you is we have no better friend today than philosophy if you know what it's all about. 
We don't have, we have no better friend on our side than logic. The real nuts in the world, and let's call a spade a spade, the real nuts in the world are the people who are rejecting Christianity because they're saying it's irrational. But it is not the Christian faith that's irrational. It is not the biblical worldview that is out of sync with reason or experience or practice. It is the non-Christian worldview that our friends still think is somehow superior to what we have. All right, now we're going to start a little journey. We're going to have two more times together this week. Maybe we'll have an opportunity to talk over lunch or something. But you start zeroing in on your worldview and how your worldview can meet the challenge of any competing worldview out there. Let's have a prayer. Father, it ought to be exciting news that the salvation we have in Jesus Christ is not some blind, irrational leap in the dark, but is in fact part of an all-encompassing worldview that is superior intellectually, rationally, empirically, and pragmatically to anything else that the world has to offer. Lord, give us enthusiasm for this business of the Christian worldview. Help us to begin exploring it. Help us to begin using it as an apologetic and as an evangelistic tool. We'll give you thanks, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.